to, pe- to the podcast, Peggy's Recovery Corner. We are back today with a very special guest. It is a gentleman that I met in Arizona uh, a while, actually this year. Um, it's a really good man. Uh, his name is Estelle Wallace. Am I saying it right? I just want to make no, sure I'm that's pronouncing okay. it. I don't take offense. It's Estel. Estel. Estel Wallace. Um, welcome to the corner. Thank you. Glad to be here. Appreciate it. We've got some important things that we want to talk about today, but we'll, first we'll delve into your past, see who you are, uh, where you were born, where you were raised, and then we'll get into the recovery portion, and then about we'll talk about the other stuff that the show is really about today. Um, so who are you? Uh, my name is Esther Wallace. Um, I'm founder and CEO of Cornerstone Healing Center. Mm-hmm. I've been recovering myself a long time, uh, 17 years. So where I was born, all that, um, I could, I could boil it down probably in just a few minutes. Um, sure. so I'm a product of alcoholism in the foster system. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was born in, uh, the sticks, a place called Clinton, Missouri. Okay. Uh, my parents are alcoholics, uh, never really landed on their feet. Uh, they both had periods of sobriety, but never really strung. It's never really strung much of anything meaningful or significant together in terms of recovery or family life or anything like that. Uh, so I was let, I was in foster care as an infant. I was adopted when I was about two by my grandparents. Okay. So, um, yeah, so I, I've done, you know, I've done the, I've done the work in the steps. I've done a lot of therapy and not, I'm a long ways from really like placing blame anywhere. Like, look, you get what you get. You don't throw a fit. Right. And you, and you work through your stuff, but if you're asking, the answer is yeah i i came into the world with loneliness despair heartache and abandonment and a, a a real sense of not being anchored all that came baked in to my lens so you when you say that you were adopted like you were put up for adoption but your grandparents then got you and raised you like your biological grandparents yes my biological grandparents on my father's side okay and so, so there was very no, fortunate no, in that aspect. That's that's awesome. Any siblings? Uh, I have a biological sibling. I have a younger brother who was adopted at birth a year later, so he's mm-hmm. one year younger than me. Right. Um, I've never met him. I've uh, I've looked. I've tried. It was a closed adoption in okay. 1978. Gotcha. So uh, I grew up with some uh, some of my uncles in the house. So I always called them my brothers, and I had good relationships with most of them. Okay. And then gr- growing up in your grandparents' house, you said, how old were you when they adopted you or brought you in? It's two. Two. And uh, living under their roof, I mean, when did you actually first start getting into drugs and alcohol? Eight. Eight years old? Yeah, drinking. Yeah, sure. Okay. I thought I was unique. I, I mean, I had sips. It wasn't like I was a, like a regular drinker, but dad wow. would give me sips of cognac. Yeah, I wasn't a regular drinker at that age either. Um, I did get drunk my first time at eight. It was on okay. Halloween. Uh, strangely enough, we're close to Halloween. Yes. And we went, me and my buddy, uh, two of my friends, um, I'll leave their names out of it, but two guys I was very close with when I was a kid. Uh, the three of us, we split an 18-pack of beer that I found. I fa- We have canal systems that run through Arizona, that run through the, the valley here in Phoenix. Uh-huh. And they're tributaries from the Colorado River mainly, mm-hmm. but um, but they're kind of sketchy. There's there's a, they're like our version of alleyways. And I was riding my bike on the canal, and I found an empty what I thought was an empty box of beer. It was a full eighteen pack. And so you were, so you've grown up in Arizona from from, from the beginning, Duan, pretty much. Duan, yeah. yeah. And where was it? Did you say Phoenix or where was Phoenix. it? Yeah. And you're still in Phoenix to this day. Yeah, I live in North Scottsdale now, but yeah, same same difference. Okay. Okay. Um, all right, so then it started with beer. Started with beer, yeah. We the three of us drank all three of those. Uh, it was Halloween day. We went to the um, the haunted house at our elementary school. Mm-hmm. I threw up. We were asked to leave. And what's interesting is that one of those other children, when we were in high school, died alcohol related, mm-hmm. and the other kid and I did hard drugs together until we were twenty one. He was a dual citizen. He was born in Belgium. So his dad put him on a plane back to Zurich, Switzerland, where they where you can shoot dope openly. I mean, there there's obviously restrictions and guidelines around it, but there it's much more decriminalized there. It's like uh, they're in shooting galleries, right? 
Kind of. Yeah. I've, so he's there still shooting dope and we're, I'm 44. So he's 44 also. My God. Oh, yep. interesting. And I, landed in, I landed in the 12 step world. I landed in the recovery culture, uh-huh. you know? So, 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 uh, you said you've gotten to heavy drugs. What after alcohol, what, what then? Uh, you know, I always enjoyed smoking weed and stuff like that, but, uh, you know, for me, methamphetamine was where it was at. And was there a lot of meth running rampant in the Phoenix area? Still is. Yeah. Still is. It has been for a long it's, time. Hasn't yeah, it? Yeah. It's been pretty hard. Uh, I, so I was using, I was a teenager and using in the nineties when we transitioned away from what we used to call bathtub crank yeah. to the, uh, the stuff that the Mexican cartel was making, mm-hmm. which is what we call now glass. But they used to call it ice and like they weren't really sure what to call it at first because meth was always yellow or or red or mm-hmm. pink sometimes. So what, you're, you're talking about the good old biker dope, the stuff yep, that was the like the jet, the jet fuel, the, the crank. Right. It was right. crank. You, you grew up in L.A.? I grew up in L.A. and Orange County and back then. Yes, you guys got the same dope we did. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was it was like peanut butter. There was all different peanut kinds. Butter, there was the pink stuff. Champagne. Too champagne yeah. there was even some blue stuff that went around and that that's the that's type of stuff bad shit. i don't know about the blue stuff you, back then like you weren't supposed to smoke that shit like you were supposed to snort it and it was very <laughs> very very powerful like that yeah. shit would keep yeah. you up for a long time for yeah, days on end. people don't believe me when i say i stayed up for nine days they're like that's in that's like not humanly possible i'm like believe me when you put that <laughs> shit in you it's possible yeah yeah I, I i didn't sleep much in the 90s you got Christine Williams is saying, uh, we used to call the pancakes straight from the bikers, Orange County, Riverside, California. <laughs> yeah, I know about Riverside. When I, God, it must have been 1998 or seven. I was living in a trap house in, um, in just outside of Redlands. In California? Mm-hmm. So you have lived in California too? I, I spent about six months homeless in um, the San Diego uh like the main Belmont Park campground by the Bay Area, mm-hmm. and then I spent about uh, I don't know another six or nine months in uh, Redlands. Yeah. So during that time, I mean, when you had gone on to, to live in California, like were your grandparents kind of over it? Were they not able to do anything for you? I they left just... home. At, I left home at eighteen. It was a mutual middle finger. It was they were done with it, and I was done with their bullshit. They were just they just wanted the best for me. When you say abandonment issues earlier, you had mentioned that. Was that because you felt like because you were adopted, perhaps your parents gave you up that you were abandoned by them? Yeah. And being much older now, my and my folks, the people that raised me, my grandparents, they're dead and gone now for many years. Mm-hmm. And now I have my own children. I have my own small children. I have a six, uh, three and a three year old and I have a newborn. And, I know you had a newborn this year. I remember you told yeah, me. That. Yeah. yeah. So uh, thanks, man. I. You know, five years ago, you know, four or five years ago, I'm in therapy and and I'm crying and I'm like, is it normal for little kids to sleep with their parents? And my therapist is like, yeah, Estelle, that's like a normal thing. And I'm like, I, I couldn't get my head around it. And she's like, do you enjoy it? And I'm like, yeah, it's incredible. It's precious. It's I mean, they, she kicks me. But other than that, I mean, it's really it's the sweetest thing. And uh, and our children still sleep with us uh, most hmm. nights. And that's one example of just a lot of a, a lot of um, what I think I would be a healthy childhood, or let's say the type of uh, childhood I'm trying to create for my my children that mm-hmm. I just, I didn't get. Wow, that's, that's nobody's fault. That's alcohol. I mean, chalk one up another win for alcoholism. That's really what it is. For sure, I'm really a person I mean. to blame. <laughs> All say. right. So homeless in California for a minute. Uh, you did you make your way back to Phoenix? How long were you homeless? Uh, no real long stretches. I think my longest stretch would probably be, uh, you know, between three and four months. Okay. And then we outside sometimes inside sometimes. And I do homeless, you know, with some swagger. I do homeless with a backpack and couch surfing. We'd come up on some money, maybe get into a hotel room, you know, stay stay at people's houses and shit, stay places. Do do as much, uh, as much as I can. When I say homeless, I mean, yeah, outside. I ended up outside a lot, but Question for you. So growing up in Phoenix, like obviously, I mean, I, I, when I came out to see you guys, when I, when I went to, I went to, it was Prescott back then, but yeah. um, I landed in Phoenix and like, I've, I'd been to Phoenix probably 20 years before. Sure. But when I got there this time, I was like, Oh my God, this place is fucking rough. Like it's got a city. Yeah. It's a city here. There's, we're about 5 million. Okay. That, that's a lot. That is a lot of people. 
right? So I remember like, uh, and also just working in treatment in California, like we get a lot of clients from Phoenix that tell me Phoenix has gotten rough. Was it like that growing up? Yeah, I don't, I don't remember ever not being a bit rough. It just depends on, it's like any place else. It's got good neighborhoods and bad neighborhoods. Sure, and, like LA. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's really nice parts, uh, and then there's really shitty parts, and there's everything in between. Right. Okay. So and as an active drug addict, I sought out places that were seedier than where I was from because that's where the drugs were. Right. When you move back to Phoenix after your uh, short-lived homeless stint in California, uh, what'd you do? Did you did you go stay at someone's house, or were you homeless there too, or did you get back on your feet? Um, so the first time, so when I left San Diego and came back here, the first time I stayed in my car for like nine months, wow. but then, and then I ended up going back and staying in San Bernardino in, uh, in Redlands. Right. And we stayed in, we stayed in like a, like a weird townhouse thing. It was like 15 of us that lived there. Um, and then I had one of those aha moments, like, dude, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to live like this. And I came back and I moved to South Scottsdale. I, I rented a room from a guy that I grew up skateboarding with. Uh-huh. I got, and I was totally sober. Not in any kind of program. I just was like, dude, I'm not doing this anymore. You know, Mm. I must have been 22 or three or something. And uh, yeah, I got a job making like 13 bucks an hour, which is pretty good for, you know, 1999 or whatever. For back then, yes, it was. Mm -hmm. And uh, got a little girlfriend. I was seeing a stripper and thought I was going to live the straight and narrow. And I did what so many people do is I convinced myself that I could smoke weed. Mm hmm. But I, I start smoking weed, I forget I'm an alcoholic. I start drinking, I forget I'm a drug addict, and round and round we go. Right. Okay. So you were actually attempting to stay sober just kind of on your own with minus 12 steps, or was that involved? Yeah, no 12 steps, no programming of any kind. It wasn't, I wasn't hip to it, to be honest. Um, my biological father had kind of tried to uh, intermittently try to get into my life a little bit over the years, and I knew that he was an AA person or whatever that meant. I wasn't even sure. I knew right. he a halfway house Salvation Army type of dude, and I thought, mm. "Fuck that!" Yeah. I swear. Yeah, of course you can. I just, I just cussed myself. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, I mean, my only exposure to twelve step or programming was his patheticness, and I mm-hmm. thought, you know, whatever that is, doesn't work. You know. Gotcha. So, with the whole smoking weed and alcohol thing and all that, so did you get back into heavy drugs again? Like, and that was Didn't in your, well. was that in your, in your uh, young adulthood, like in your twenties? Yeah. Yeah, early twenties, and then I got sober at twenty six. 26. And what was the, I mean, why, why did you get sober? So young? I mean, that's a wonderful thing to happen, but you don't see a lot of kids that that are in their mid twenties. Actually, I didn't, it wasn't even a fathomable thought during that time. Like I didn't get sober till my mid thirties. Um, was there a crisis I, moment or something? N- no, not any, there was, but not externally. I could tell some more stories and I could tell some crazy things that happened, but I got to tell you, what really pushed me over the edge to like seek out real help. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had, I had stolen a bicycle, like a downhill, like an expensive, like thousand, like maybe two, three thousand dollar bicycle. Mm-hmm. And I traded it for a quarter ounce of methamphetamine, mm-hmm. $50 and a pocket knife. And I started, so I'm drinking vodka and I'm, and I'm smoking meth and I'm about as fucked up as I can be and still be conscious. Mm-hmm. And I'm walking the canal right, right from far, from far, like 20 miles probably back to my neighborhood mm-hmm. to go start over, right? right. Go find a place to be, find something to steal, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. And I'm about as loaded as I can be. And normally I drink and I use drugs so that I don't have to be so acutely aware of how dysfunctional and broken my life is. Mm. Again, I don't know that it really started that way. I just, you know, I came in, I came into the world a little off kilter and then getting fucked up was just, I enjoyed it. I liked getting fucked up. Right. And it turned into this thing where I need to get fucked up because I can't stand myself. I hate myself. I hate my life. I hate the human race, etc. Mm-hmm. And that day, walking that long walk, as loaded as I could be and still be standing, mm-hmm. that feeling wasn't dulled at all. Mm. That, that intensity of like, man, my life sucks. <clears throat> and then my next thought was, I might not die anytime soon. You know, I'm so grandiose. I'm always like, oh, you know, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be turning somebody's house over and I'll get shot or right. some crazy shit. And it hit me like, dude, what if that, what if that never happens? What if you just walk around Phoenix for another 20 years like this? 
And I thought, fuck, I have to kill myself. Right. I've got to work up the courage to do something to kill myself because I can't do this anymore. And that sort of just me by myself contemplating walking down the canal. I had this I had this moment of real panicked desperation of like, I don't even know what help looks like. Mm -hmm. If there is something for me, like I'm ready to I'm ready to see what that is. And I ended up at the Salvation Army. I called the Salvation Army. Mm -hmm. They answered and they said, this is like a, this is like a Wednesday or a Thursday. Right. What's that? I said, right. Yeah. And, uh, and they answer and they go, we do intakes on Tuesday morning. So show up here on next Tuesday, right? It's like days away. Show mm -hmm. up here next Tuesday. You drop a clean UA and we'll get you in. And I just fucking exploded. And I, I just smashed the payphone to fucking pieces. It took everything I had, everything I had to pick up the phone and ask somebody for help. I had, and now I'm supposed to stay sober. Until next week. Yeah. Like, like, this is clearly not it. And uh, and after I gathered myself, I just started picking cigarette butts in front of that Circle K. And a mm. dude that I went to high school with that just got out of the penitentiary, he's all fucking yoked, he's covered in tattoos, he's driving a big lifted truck. Mm -hmm. Pulls up, sees me, and he's like, hey, Estelle. And I'm like, hey. He's like, dude, you look rough, man. He's like, you do not look good. And I said, yeah, I'm getting sober. He's like, bullshit. You don't look sober at all. Right. I said, I'm trying to get in the Salvation Army. He's like, well, if you're for real, come with me. And he put me on his couch until that Tuesday. And I wow. stayed sober. And I checked into the Salvation Army. And I stayed there for three days. And I walked. And what did you do? I got high immediately. Immediately, I, I I was so overwhelmed with remorse and shame and disgust for myself. Right. I mean, I can't, that's, this is the this is the problem, Pej. I can't stay sober for real stretches because the longer I stay sober, the more the more intensely aware I am of what a piece of shit I am. Hmm. And so I could never put string together any real sobriety. And I didn't know that that was a thing. And I didn't know that there was a book. And I didn't know there was a whole fellowship. And mm -hmm. I didn't know that that was totally a thing that exists and people have. And it's called alcoholism. I didn't know that. Not until I really started going to 12-step meetings in uh, county jail out here in Maricopa County. Oh, so you got you got locked up and that's where you were kind of turned on to 12-steps. Yeah, 12-step yeah, meetings came in and, and uh, this guy, he shared his story. But, I mean, he was reading my mail. I mean, it was my story with his circumstances around it. And right. after the meeting, I did what so many people do and i hope somebody does today and i said hey man i don't know what this is all about but i need help okay um, yeah. so question for you were you ever because you talked about doing methamphetamines had you ever had any opiate stints did you ever do heroin sure. okay were you intravenously shooting it smoking it how smoking. are you doing smoking okay. it okay and so uh when you went to jail and you were introduced to the 12-step world did you stay sober i did is that, is that what then. you that's what my sober. last time I was arrested was May 8th of 2004. And that's my sobriety date. Say it again. The date May 8th of 2004. I okay. was arrested at 1 a.m. Interestingly enough, you know, I work in treatment, obviously, and uh, okay. we have fingerprint clearance cards. So I had to I applied and got denied mm -hmm. criminal records. So I went I had to like go to the court, old court records building and and like dig up these old like microfilm records because I got right. arrested like right as the Internet was becoming a thing. So right. all the records are really wonky and I had to go through and get these microfilm records and I'm taking pictures of old police reports and handwritten shit, you know, notes by the cops on the day that I'm arrested. Mm -hmm. Makes me want to cry, man. <clears throat> and reading all that, it's like following cold case files on a fucking ghost. It's not even me. It's really, it was really a bizarre out of body experience to read all these, all these reports and, and, and know that that's my life. And that was the day that was literally the day that everything changed. That is powerful. Oh, really is powerful. Weird. So, okay. So now we get into the recovery. This is kind of where we're, because I know you and I know what you do and I know who you are. Like I, I met you this year at a men's retreat. Yes, and I just remember I saw you not just sitting in the front and not, not just being a major part of that retreat, but I, I recognize the fact that you're a leader in the community. And I'm not saying that to, to put you on a pedestal or anything like that, but I, I, I just looked in your eyes and I was like, I got to know him. Like there's something special about that guy. And it wasn't because you're bald, you know, <laughs> like me and, and, and got a good physique. It's because I just knew like people were drawn to you. And, and I believe that you're, 
your recovery is very contagious. And, and I, the reason I wanted to talk about this part in this way is because I've been to jail and I fucking don't, I, I didn't stay sober. You know, I, I would convince myself I'm going to get sober and I get out. I, I would I absolutely tell myself, I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to walk a straight line. I'm going to be a good boy, not do any more bullshit. And the next thing you know, I get right out. I kiss the ground literally because I'm fucking dramatic. Like, oh my God, like back to freedom. <laughs> and I'm off to the races, right to the dealer's house or right to somebody's house that's going to be able to provide me with drugs. So you took it serious inside the jail, right? At a very young age, 26, you said you got sober, yes. correct? And you stayed sober. Um, did you know, like, how long did it take for you to, to like, know, like, this is going to be a way of life that I want? Like, there's, where you're not in relapse mode, where you're not still contemplating using and drinking, where you're like, fuck this, I'm going all the way. Was it immediately? No, no, God, no. Uh, and before I really get into it, I just want to say thank you. That's really kind. Those are oh. very kind words. Well, you're um, a good man. I appreciate that, man. Um, but likewise, like our, likewise, we need people like you. We need men like you in the world. Um, no, I was very, first of all, I was skeptical as fuck. Uh, mm. I was skeptical of the 12-step world, of the 12-step, like, why would they want to help me? I didn't, I couldn't, you know, I... My uh, my grand sponsor who's been dead a long time. He used to say, "Don't worry if God scares you out of the rooms, cracking whiskey will scare you back in." And I was caught in that place, right? Like where I didn't really trust the twelve step world, and I didn't like the spirituality stuff. But I didn't really right. want to go back to the street either. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to go. I didn't want to go to the penitentiary. So I, I, I kind of did the work under duress, mm -hmm. uh, like so many people. Um, at about six months of sobriety, I was actively sponsoring men. I was still living in a halfway house, like in central Phoenix, like in the hood, gunshots nightly, like in the halfway house, a real like 12 step based, not treatment, like just a halfway house, like a hundred bucks a week. All your meals are included kind of a place. Uh -huh. Steps on the wall, places growth. Uh, saved my life. I lived there for eight months. At about six months, I'm living there and I'm sponsoring guys that what we have out here is called TLC. They're like real hood, hood ass uh, they're not treatment. They're like halfway houses, right. they're usually like prison yards. They're like, um, they're all prison guys. Mm -hmm. And I just, I couldn't find sponsees. And of course my sponsors like grinding my gears to get sponsees. And I just, somebody took me on an H and I meeting to a TLC and there was all these prison, you know, prison tattoos and hard stairs and yeah. no big books. And I just broke out a big book and like three or four dudes were like, you, you can sponsor me. And I was like, yeah, I can sponsor you. And all of a sudden I got all these guys to work with. And in that, in that time frame, in those first few weeks of really digging in and, and working with other men, trying to, trying selflessly to help those guys have, have, find some freedom. Mm -hmm. Mine became, mine became like, uh, it came full circle and the obsession to drink, the obsession to use and the obsession to harm myself. Mm -hmm vanished in one in one instant and it hasn't come back that's amazing and, and the reason i was going back to the whole jail thing is there's obviously like and i guess you were young but it doesn't mean that you were uh, exempt from from becoming shot out because you see people that like fucking do heavy drugs some of them yeah. mix shit they do goofballs and shit like that like heroin meth mixed together and then all of a sudden next thing you know the dude's walking down the street because he's got some mental disorder and he's screaming mm -hmm. at the sky and absolutely certain that he's like the antichrist right so yeah I, I thought some weird shit in in the last couple of years before you I have started. experienced psychosis mm -hmm. for okay. sure and that happens when you stay up for I long enough on meth yeah and i don't think my psychosis was all that different than many people report uh it was very like Kind of like a mix between the Truman Show and maybe Aliens. <laughs> like, uh, like there's so, definitely something up and definitely not everybody's real. And I'm definitely the, like, here's the bullets. Like, this is all a setup for sure. Uh -huh. uh, maybe some of the people are real and some of them are like, um, they're like Westworld hosts. You know, they're like robots mm -hmm. or whatever. You're like, like non-player characters. <laughs> Most of them, like just filler people. And then there's, and then also uh, I'm the center like mm -hmm. the Truman Show. Right. And uh, yeah, I, I thought a lot of weird shit. I actually went to a, a dope dealer's house. Um, he was a friend of mine. God, I don't, I don't see if I can say this without saying too much. Mm -hmm. He was a very well-connected person. Right. Um, and so he's, his family was very well-connected. And I, I just, he was a friend. He was somebody I'd known for a long time. And mm -hmm. I went to his house just wanting to get inside. I'd been outside for a while, maybe a couple of weeks and really in some psychosis. 
and he let me in and he let me sleep in his kid's room. Let me shower at me in the morning, gives me some dope, start getting high. And he's like, bro, you look, you look like you're losing it, dude. What's going on with you? And I'm like, Hey, do you ever get the feeling like you're being followed? He's like, yeah, sometimes. I mean, like I'm committing some things I shouldn't be doing. And right. I'm like, does you ever feel like they can see what you're doing through your own eyes? And he's like, bro, you need to get sober. Yeah. <laughs> he's yeah. like, you're losing your mind now. It's he's amazing. Like, that is not real. Right. So you're bringing that up right now. And it's amazing. I, I encounter lots of people that, that are in full-blown psychosis. And more more recently, I, I, I realized that when I'm talking to some of them and hearing that type of terminology and language, uh-huh. they want you to also real they want to let the person like myself if they're telling me they want to let me know listen like i know you're gonna think i'm crazy because everybody else says i'm crazy Mm -hmm. but like i know what i know and i know it's really happening Mm -hmm. and i'm like well what's happening well they got my car bugged they got the house bugged they got i'm like who's they microchip in my neck microchip in my neck all the different things i'm like who's they well it's the fbi but could be the cia and then again it could be the dea i'm not exactly sure i'm like you think you're that important like that you got like what are you breaking federal laws that you think the fbi is going after you but 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 so for those that don't know that are watching this or will watch this one of the reasons that drug-induced methamphetamine psychosis occurs is because when somebody does meth, they stay up for days and days and days. They're exactly. sleep-deprived. You know, they are malnourished. They they uh, start to hallucinate or they start to think certain things. A lot of paranoia will set in. They may have a lot of secrecy in their lives, and so they they start to encounter these types of thoughts. And often, when I hear somebody say like. They're out to get me. And who's they, right? Then mm-hmm. the first thing where my head goes is the guy's probably doing meth. Right. And it gets mis, um, it, the symptoms uh, mirror schizophrenia. So it, it's real. like people that aren't used to it, they can, they'll be like, oh, this person's in full blown, you know, they're having a, they're having a schizophrenic episode. And sure. Like, eh, I think they've just been awake too long. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. But you have to have that experience to be able to tell that apart. And, like, and the, they, with psychosis, it can also be temp, temporary. I mean, it might just be while they're on it. It might be a few days when they get off of it. It might yeah. be a few weeks. It might be a few months. Sometimes it's permanent. Dude, Sometimes they need to get medicated. So check this out. So I'm I'm two plus years sober. Uh-huh. <clears throat> I get off of probation, two counts of felony probation, mm-hmm. and and I want to get badged so I can take twelve step meetings into the jail where I got sober. Right? Uh-huh. I want to get back. I've had an experience. I want to, I want to be part of the momentum of this movement, right? Right. And uh, and I apply, and they reject me. They say because you have to be uh, two years off felony paper, or one year off misdemeanor paper. So I'm like, yeah. So I'm like two and a half years sober, something like that. And my felonies were supposed to be reduced to misdemeanors if uh-huh. I completed drug court, which I did. So I have to go down. I have to file motions. I have to like get, I have to like do what my PO clearly wasn't um, able to do which mm-hmm. is filed paperwork properly so that my felony was reduced to a misdemeanor. And by the time yeah. I finally got it reduced to a misdemeanor on my own power, like going around all these court buildings, right. it finally, like the last sliver of paranoia slipped away. And I was like, dude, they weren't fucking after me. They can't even file paperwork. <laughs> you know who's been after me? You know who knows the intricacies, the nuance, the subtle nuance of my every move and who's been out for my destruction this whole fucking time? That's, that's the, right. and I think that's why people with, I think that's why it's so common that people have the same theme in their psychosis. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not that, it's not that I am so special. It's that I'm having my, I, I'm living, all of us, we're all living in our own weird little movie. Right. And when my movie doesn't have anything really cool going on, my brain isn't cool with that. And we have to invent something cool. I'm telling you, you bring up the Truman show. When I was tweaking, that movie came out and I thought, <laughs> they fucking know, like they yeah. know. I remember yeah. going. Yeah, I went. I went in the county jail one time. I, I that was underneath the bottom bunk, and I look up, and you don't have pens in there, right? But somebody had somehow snuck a pen in there, and they wrote underneath the bunk. Just because they say that you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not watching. I'm like, fucking, they know straight up, right? So, so you, you okay? So you took this thing by the horns. You started helping people. That's that's. Being of service is what what recovery is truly all about. We know that, right? But over a period of time, what happened then? You started to build your life up. How did you become the 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 man that you are today? Uh, it's a big question. 
Um, so interestingly, I'm compiling a, a, a list of books for my children to read uh -huh. once they become adults, like, like, Hey, hard press, like you got to read this shit. Um, and I think that might be a good place to start. So, uh, I hope they never need to read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous published in 1935, but, um, you know, that book obviously changed my life, uh, mm -hmm. more significantly and picked up more low hanging fruit than any other book has. Right. Just read, cleaned house on me, right? Psychologically cleaned house, really helped me straighten out a lot of things. Um, mm -hmm. Then at, a, at, at like between two and three years of recovery, I read a book because I never meditated in the, my first couple of years. Right. I didn't know how, and I had some weird uh, preconceived notions about it. Right. And I just, I made it out to be more than it is, I, I think. Um, mm -hmm. And I read a book at a, at somebody's suggestion. I read a, the book, uh, The Power of Now. Oh, great book. Eckhart Tolle. Yeah. And that, that book, you know, already kind of working a 12-step lifestyle, mm -hmm. reading that book, layering that on top, really brought a new level of self-awareness and, and self-honesty mm -hmm. that, that I didn't have yet. Right. That changed me a lot. And this is going to sound dumb, but, or it's whatever. The same, that same year, I met a guy uh, who was only like two or three years older than me. He was a millionaire. Mm -hmm. And I worked for his dad and I said, dude, how did you, uh, he's in a corner office in this big, in this bank of America tower. He's got the whole floor. It's crazy. Right. I've, I've never seen anything like this. Not, not from somebody close to my age. And also I've been living in a basically public bathroom for the last 10 years. So I also, you know, I wasn't real up to date on a lot of things. Uh, and I said, dude, how did you do this? And he said, well, if you've never read the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I suggest you go buy it and start there. Mm -hmm. So I did. I bought Robert T. Kiyosaki's book in 2000, you know, summer of 2005, or maybe it was early 2006. I bought that book. I would say the combination of those three books, I mean, altered the trajectory of my life so significantly. I shudder to think where I'd be without all three of those books. Right. And the, and the practice that's grown out of the lifestyle that's grown out of practicing the principles that are within those books. So yeah, I started working for myself early sobriety, like two, three years of sobriety. I started business, joined a gym. You created your own universe, your own energy, like through, through good energy, just because you were on the right path. That's very similar to, um, I was in rehab and they would show us these, uh, on Monday nights, these educational videos that were about the fucking brain and the yeah. addict brain and yeah. about the frontal cortex. And I'm just like, this is so fucking boring. Like, I'm I'm coming off a hard meth run. Like, I don't have the tolerance to sit here and watch this for an hour. Some guy on a chalkboard, it's a like a video. And he's like, mm -hmm. show. Like, but then all of a sudden, one day they is came it like and they- Pleasure woven or some shit? It, oh, it was just, I don't even remember what it was. But I remember yeah. every time that it was going to be that movie or that guy, I was like- Oh, <laughs> but then one day they said, we're going to watch something different today. We're going to watch the secret. I'm like, what the fuck is that? And they started playing the secret. And, you know, you got guys like Michael Beckwith and all these other spiritual practitioners that are total powerhouses. And I'm like, who are these guys? Like, what are they talking about? And they were talking about building your universe, your energy, like whatever you put into the universe, you're going to get that back. So if you're a negative Nancy, you're going to have a very negative outlook. But if you're like positive, like a positive Peter, you're going to be able to create things, do things, become the best version of yourself, like take your talents to the next level. And here we are. I mean, like you've you're, you're doing amazing you know from from what i know of you you've you just that little experience right there of meeting that guy and he telling you get that book i got that book too somebody told me to get that book rich dad poor dad but um now look at you i mean this is what stood out to me when i first met you and and i know that uh i'm sure you experience this quite often we're at this retreat. It's a men's retreat. There's a bunch of youngsters there. There's a bunch of people that look kind of rough. There's a bunch of people that look like they were straight out of prisons. There's some people that, like, it was cool to see, like, blacks and whites hanging out together, kind of wearing, like, they're, they're representing, like, their, their sober clothing line. Like, that was yeah. dope, right? And and um, it was it was a lot of us. It was, like, 200 men, like, all in the same place. This is, like, during the end of COVID, and I, it was the first time I'd actually been somewhere in public without having to wear a mask. And I was like, this is fucking great. And and then 
Um, <laughs> I noticed you had a lot of guys around you. And later on that night, after I gave my talk, like everyone was over by the fire and you were talking to people about trying to empower people that were still there, but also talking to people about the ones that had recently died. Yeah. And, and I think in that particular weekend, it was more than a few. It was like a, a plethora of people that had recently died. I have good reason to believe without knowing that they were dying from fentanyl overdoses. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just thinking as you were talking, um, I was in L.A. just recently to a one of the one of the most heartbreaking funerals I've ever been to in my life. It was also a fentanyl overdose. A guy, dear friend of mine worked at, do you know uh, Chabad? It's in uh, L.A. Chabad. Yeah. I have a dear friend who was working there just recently died like two months ago, maybe less. That's little kids, babies. His wife is actually, it's, it's very sad, very sad. So I was in LA very recently. I didn't think to look you up. I probably should have. I was only there for the day. You can all, we'll, 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 we'll link up again. I'm going to come out to see you soon and you come to see me, but as yeah, far a, lot as, of, a lot of fentanyl overdoses, a lot. And it's not just happening for the average drug user. It's happening to people that, that have been in recovery for a while. I mean, this is my experience. I've known people who I've sat with and and had six or seven years of recovery, and we together looked at each other in each other's eyes and said, we just lost another one. We just lost another one. We just lost another one. And I'm looking at that person in their eyes, and he overdosed and died too. From fucking fentanyl. I mean, it was no question in my mind when they said that he was found dead in his bathroom. Like I know, come on, I'm not stupid. Like it's it's got to be. If, if you're if you're if you're dying of a drug, there's only two drugs that are that are supporting the lion's share of drug overdoses for 2020 that we have back from the CDC numbers. It's mm -hmm. fentanyl and alcohol. More people die of alcohol um, intoxication every year than all other drugs combined. You know that? I did know that, and and people think that. It's not a dangerous drug. It's a. It's still. It's a drug. Eh? It's. It's extremely dangerous in many different ways. I mean, besides the fact that you can get cirrhosis of the liver or you know car accidents and things like, there's so many components to it. There's people that are uh, that can die because of somebody who's in their alcoholism. There's you know somebody might take out someone on the road or or have a major car accident. You know whatever that is. But but for the for the most part, you know, fentanyl is on the rise and and oh we're. I mean, it's yeah. national. It's nationally in, in America, from what I know, uh, every state, there's the cartels make their rounds. There's plenty of fentanyl that's going around. And these days, I have a, through my TikTok presence, I do a lot of videos about various drugs and things like that. But I have a lot of people that were messaging me on a national level in their teens, all the way up into like the 50s and 60 years of age that are fucking hooked on the blues, the blue pills. Do you want to speak on that stuff? Like, what are you seeing right now? I mean, it's it's got to be like going crazy in Phoenix. Yeah, Phoenix is overrun with fentanyl. Um, and, uh, you know, both in the 12-step rooms and uh, working in treatment, uh, I would say 60% of what we're seeing is fentanyl almost exclusively. Right. 60% of the people that are that are trying that are trying to find a way to to get to get abstinent mm -hmm. there's um, a lot of people that are going to treatment uh thinking that they were uh an oxy user or they think that they've been a heroin addict or they think that they have been doing xanax some of it might be stuff that they're obtaining online or through the dark web but then when you do a urinalysis you are like you have fentanyl in your system like i didn't even know i was doing fentanyl yeah, I had a guy. I had a guy, a uh, guy that used to be in our twelve-step club years ago, who ended uh -huh. up com coming through treatment here. Right. And I said, "What kind of drugs are you doing?" He goes, "You know, I'm taking pills." I said, "You're doing fentanyl?" He goes, "No, no, no, I'm taking Percocets." I said, "Well, where do you where do you get the Percocets?" So I get him at work. I said, "Well, do you work at a fucking pharmacy?" Mm -hmm. He said, "No, I work construction." I said, "You're taking fentanyl." Right. He's like, how can that be? Right. And that's not, and he, he's not, and he's not alone in that experience. A lot of people, uh, young kids, for example, we're we're experiencing um, a bit of a wave of teenage death around people who really wouldn't fit the typical picture of drug addict, right? Not demographically, because there isn't one picture demographically, but but I mean, they're not 
you know, they're not going to identify with the language that's in the in the 12 steps. They're not going to No, identify. it's too much for them. No, we're talking about a kid who was at a house party having a cup of beer out of a red plastic cup. And somebody said, hey, you want to take a Percocet? And they're dead. We're seeing a wave of that. It's heartbreaking. It's scared. I mean, it scares the shit out of me because I have kids. That's it's, right. And they're little now, but in 10 years. They're going to grow up and be influenced by people. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's all in the way that we we raise the kids these days, and I, I believe yeah. it's about awareness. So what are you, as, what are you doing in in order to raise awareness? I know you're very active. Uh, so I started a podcast, uh, the Nameless Recovery Show. Um, interview people that are living exceptional lives in recovery, long term recovery. Uh, that's going okay. Of course, it depends on who I interview. I interviewed uh, my buddy Jim Adkins, the lead singer of Jimmy Eat World, and that one got the most views because he's kind of famous. Right. First, you know, um, I've got a buddy who's an Emmy winner, but he's like a news anchor. He's like a local news guy. Didn't get nearly as many. So uh, I started recording people's transition. It's like a version of their story in 15 minutes. We call it Origins. And right. it's, it seems to be getting some good traction. So I think we're going to keep pushing on origins and uh, bring to bring to the surface as as much as we can towards the mainstream. What what recovery really looks like? Because we have, in my view, two big misconceptions publicly around addiction. And you're right with fentanyl killing people the way it is that at the rates that it is. I mean, from drugs drugs and alcohol currently. We're losing 544.7 American lives every single day. Mm-hmm. That's like when I when I talk about it, I ask people, when's the last time you remember 747 in the United States crashing? Most people can't tell you. I can't. The last one I know about is that um, I think it was uh, United Emirates or something right. went down in the Indian Ocean, mm-hmm. appeared. I remember that. That's about 400 people, world news. Right. And here we've got one of those plus a school bus full of people burning alive every 24 hours in the United every States. 24 hours. And, and there are some people kind of talking about it. It was kind of headline news before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. All, that went, all that went by the wayside. And last year we told everybody to shelter in place and stay home. And we closed AA halls by the hundreds, maybe right. the thousands. Treatment centers closed. And, the, and what happened? Alcohol consumption, fentanyl production. And overall, black market drug consumption and and overdose just shot just shot up thirty shot up like crazy. And I yeah, promise crazy. you that most people that were experimenting or doing fentanyl or doing fentanyl not knowing that it was that probably were not afraid of catching COVID. Not to discount COVID and say like it's not crazy. No, it's they're not worried. The, about a lot of the people, I, a lot of people I work with, they were you know they're they're doing dope in public bathrooms. They're a lot more concerned about whether or not they're going to find the tools for living. So to answer your question, um, mm-hmm. what I there's a few there's a few things we're working on. We've got this docu series that we're working on. Uh, we're continuing to pump out new episodes of, of Origins. Um, that's on our site. Uh, I'll shoot you a couple of episodes. See if you please like it. Please do. Please do. Uh, Origins is fun then because uh, you get bite size you get bite size uh, stories uh, out of people's lives and how they transitioned. Mm-hmm. Then another thing that uh, that we do is I, we work with uh, ASU here and uh, Arizona all the fire departments. So in Arizona, how can I say this? Do you remember last year there was a lot of talk about sending social workers on nine one one calls? Yes, defunding uh-huh. the police and all this. All right. So in Arizona, one of the few states that actually does that, like we've been doing it for like a decade. So we actually have social workers and uh, and trained psychologists that run 911 calls because out here, police aren't the first people to show up to a crime. Fire is. Mm-hmm. We have fire and we have psychi- psychologists that work for the fire departments that show up. In wow. addition, yeah, we've been doing that for a long time in Arizona because we have a lot of we're we're a border state. We have a lot of fucking drugs going on here. Right. Not, not everything is a you know not everything needs to be solved with a gun. A lot of things can be solved by getting somebody to the right in front of the right provider. Mm-hmm. Uh, in addition to sending psych, uh, psychologists out, they're also attempting to train one in three of all Arizona firefighters in crisis. Right. So they understand what suicidal ideation looks and sounds like. So they understand the difference between what a meth psychosis and a schizophrenic looks like. So they mm-hmm. can, so they can, they can, they know how to Narcan someone. So they know firsthand 
what the personal stories are behind a drug addict so that when they see them, they have a little compassion and aren't so fatigued by being the 10th call of the day or the fourth call of the day. And these are firefighters, man. These are people that drag that drag children's bodies out of pools. Wow. People that find, you know, people assaulting people at Circle K. These are young guys in their 20s and 30s that joined the fire, the fire service because they wanted to save people and they wanted to help their communities. And here they are put in these hellish situations. So here in Arizona, one in three uh, fire people that work for fire departments are crisis support trained. So we're actually on the panel that helps with the crisis support training. Right. So I spend a lot of time working with firefighters here locally, uh, police occasionally, but mostly with firefighters uh, and mm. helping understand some of the nuance with addiction. How many people, like they don't know how many people it affects. They don't realize necessarily that it's a disease. They don't understand they don't understand powerlessness versus choice. There's a lot of, so we have, you know, I spend a lot of time, I'm doing that tomorrow in Tucson. I'll be spending some time with a couple of different fire departments tomorrow. I love it. That's needed. We need it more is. people. We need more people doing what you're doing. Uh, question for you. So let's talk a little bit about um, Cornerstone. Cornerstone is your center that you open. It's an outpatient or is it all levels of care? We have a partial hospitalization, which is outpatient. We have an IOP. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a, a navigation program, which is sort of like a long-range case management, and we have a residential facility. So we have, we have we have a lot. We have two facilities. Okay, and uh, then there's there's sober living components. We have, like we have three sober livings. Yeah, and we're a staff of about forty four about forty four team members. Is it two all male living. or is it is it uh, coed? Female, it's coed. Coed, and so. And all ages, correct? 18 and up. 18 and up. Um, when people come into your care, are you hands-on with them? Do you get to know all of your clients? Not all, but unfortunately. Do you, do you, but do you interact with a lot of them? As often as I can. And when you can, uh, especially the ones that are fentanyl users, what's a conversation look like? Like, what do you tell them? So... <clears throat> You know, when you soap, when you, when you take the old joke is like, what do you get when you sober up a, a drunken horse thief? Yeah. You know, sober horse thief. So we, <laughs> we work on horse thievery yeah. uh, around here. That's what we work on. We work on behavioral hygiene. So a big part of what we do is it's, it's behavioral health. So we're working on behavior modification primarily. We have a medical and psychiatric component, mm -hmm. but we're not, we're not a medication assisted treatment facility. That's not our, that's not our jam. Harm right. reduction I'm in support of. You know, at the ballot, you know, I'll I'll give you my vote. I'm in I'm in favor of needle exchanges and anything that's going to help reduce the harm addiction of you know inflicts upon our, our local community. Sure. But that's not what that's not what I'm that's not what I'm an advocate for. I'm an advocate for the type of recovery that you and I both have, and that's abstinence. Mm -hmm. So in order to find long-term abstinence-based recovery, you've got to find peace. Do you yeah. get people? Sorry to interrupt you, but do you get yeah. people that are that are advocating for harm reduction that have debates with you? about your outlook and th think that you aren't accepting of, of the MAT movement and, and uh, you know, harm reduction. And for those that don't know, when it comes to MAT, like I often will talk about this in front of people that don't know, MAT stands for medical medication assistant treatment. And when we talk about harm reduction, you want to talk about this Estelle, and, sure. and say like sure. what, what, what it is all about. So uh, medication assisted treatment is um, old school. Think methadone. Right. And then in the new school, we've got Suboxone, Sublocade, anti what we call anti-craving medications. I'm totally in support of uh, pretty much any harm reduction um, mechanism or tool or instrument that you can come up with. Uh, I'm very interested as far as from a policy standpoint in a lot of the things that they're doing in Europe, particularly like in Amsterdam, where they've where they balanced decriminalization with very accessible and highly effective treatment. Um, let's put that aside. So. I'm all about it. That's fine. That's not really what we do here. What right. we do here is we strip away the substances and take, and just like, just like my life was like totally loaded. I couldn't ignore how pathetic my life was. So mm -hmm. when I was sober, that was amplified. That's why I couldn't stay sober because my, I couldn't, I didn't know how to live. And so that's what we do is we treat, we treat that. We treat the not knowing how to live. Um, to answer your question, no, I don't really get a lot of pushback from the MAT crowd. You know who I do get a little flack from, and I find it interesting, is the um, the California sober people, the people <laughs> that want to talk, that want to call smoking weed sober, right? 
which is super fun. And I, and I, I take it all with a grain of salt and I, I take it all um, in stride and I, and I just chuckle a little bit because mm -hmm. I'll, I'll talk to somebody tell I'm blue in the face about it. If they want to, the technical, you know, the, the dictionary definition of the word sober means to not have alcohol in your system. So if you're saying that you're smoking weed and you're not drinking and you're sober, mm -hmm. hooray, good for you. You just won the war of semantics. Are you going to put money in my books if I end up in the penitentiary from your horrible fucking advice? Probably not. Right. You're probably trying to put, say something quippy on social media or trying to justify your own, your own, your own version of what healthy recovery looks like. And that's fine. Mm -hmm. but I don't buy that. And that's not what I promote. When people hear the word sober, most people, I'm assuming anecdotally, mm -hmm. assume that they're, that you're sober from all mind altering substances. Like Dank Recovery says, barring caffeine and nicotine, which are beyond reproach. Right. You get those guys too. You get the guys that's that, that are sober, but have a bong. And they're like, well, if you're saying that weed's not sober, then caffeine's not sober. Hope you're not drinking coffee. You know what I mean? It's like, well, listen, I'm not the fucking sober police either. <laughs> right, right, right. In your life. I have I have friends that quit smoking, uh, quit shooting heroin and started smoking pot and went back to college and are teachers. Sure. I got to tell you, those dudes ain't claiming sobriety. Sure. But it is what it is. And <clears throat> look, the dictionary definition says that alcohol. So if you quit drinking and you smoke pot now, that's great. You're an ex. You're an ex drinker who now smokes weed. That's great. Mm -hmm. So, so then when you get some, then when I asked you about the conversations that you have with people that come into your care, do you get guys that come in and say, "I want to be on Suboxone maintenance. I want to be on subs." Like, what? What do you tell them? <clears throat> we we let them know that they can they can start on Suboxone if they're an opiate addict, and we'll taper them very gently over the course of three to five days. Give oh, I love that. My type of guy. This is music to my ears. I love this type you of have, stuff. We want you to have a safe, a, a nice, safe, soft landing. Three to five I days. God, I, I, for a second yeah. there, I thought, he better not say three to five months because. <laughs> I can't. And this is, what's, this is what people that aren't in it from firsthand experience don't understand. And that's why it, people yeah. like you and I have to be out here doing the work. I mean, I think, I think Suboxone has lost its purpose in many people's eyes, yeah. especially doctors that want to get people on long-term medication-assistant treatment. Like, I've seen people on fucking subs for a year, 10 years yeah. even, right? It's like you're being well, robbed I, of the opportunity to be able to actually, like, become completely sober. Take Agreed. the fucking Band-Aid so off. Take the Band-Aid off and join us. <laughs> some, listen, are there some – can there be a case made for the guy who's just – let me start the sentence over. The, the work that we, people who are in abstinence-based recovery, the biopsychosocial work that's done in 12-step programs and in treatment programs, the heavy lifting, the no joke, no bullshit, change your life, get real with God, yourself, and the, and the world around you. Mm -hmm. That work, after being stripped of all substances, is damn near fucking impossible. Right. It's so difficult to do. And I understand, I understand that there are many people that won't, mm -hmm, they just mm -hmm. won't, they just won't. I don't really want to use the word can't because I think that's a very small number. Right. I think the can'ts are like this. I think the won'ts are like this. Right. And I have a heart. There's a big difference. I think between the, you know, the 57 year old junkie who's been street bound for 25 years who's only willing to take methadone and not shoot dope. He is not willing to make amends. He is mm -hmm. not willing to self-search. He is mm -hmm. not willing to go out and make it right. Like, hey, if we can get that guy on methadone, I'll park my car in that lot. Like, I'm, sure. good. I'm good with sure. that. But 20, I understand that. 23-year-old, 23-year-old kid. That just wants to be subbed up. <laughs> he's dying of a fucking broken heart and lack of purpose. Right. Not, not some medical disease that requires that requires medicine. Mm -hmm. Medicine's the problem. That kid's been overdiagnosed and fucking overprescribed already. Right. Nine times out of 10. Nine times out of 10, I could take a, I could take a, a relatively healthy 20 something and with a little love, a little tough love and a little guidance, mm -hmm. I snap right out of it. Like mm -hmm. it makes me want to cry. Like out of fucking full zombie mode, who you would think if you're a policymaker and you don't have time to dig into these cases and you right. look at it and go, Fuck, if, if maybe should we get him methadone? I'm the guy that spends, hey, in two months, two, three months, I can turn this fucking shipwreck 
I can turn him around, head him back to shore, and he's going to be a fucking tax-paying, upstanding citizen in no time. We can we can fix fifteen or twenty your twenty years worth of fucking self destruction in like two or three months. It blows my mind that we can even do it at all. But let alone in that short period of time. Like all you do is pay for it. You know why policymakers like methadone? Hmm. It costs six racks a year to treat somebody. That's why it's cheap. And they've done quote unquote double blind peer reviewed studies <laughs> to show that the outcomes are better. They even they even pulled studies uh, saying that AA and twelve step programs only had single digit. Um, uh, success rates back in 2006, and then they changed their whole tune. Do you see it? I had heard about it. Tell us. It got overshadowed by the by the pandemic because it came out like February something, like February 1st. The report came out from Cochrane of 2020, so uh -huh. everybody forgot about it a month later. But they came out and said the AA has a 36% success rate just from walking in the door. Mm. And you match that up with 12 months worth of worth of recovery uh, stru uh, recovery oriented structure, i.e., sober living uh, treatment. 12 step work, mm -hmm. your chance of over permanently are over 70%. 70% for a chronic illness that kills 544 Americans every fucking day. We have 70% success rate. And you all want to sit around and shell out Suboxone and Methadone? Come on, man. Like, let us have a crack at these kids. Right. We can turn them into dads and moms and taxpayers. Sons, and daughters, all of that. Yep. We can bring them back almost literally from the dead. If you just give us a few months. Yes. That's what and it's all about. Well, there's no access to care. Bullshit. Medicaid system in the United States, does it have problems? Could it be better? Sure. Mm -hmm. Medicaid system in the United States guarantees that if you don't have an income, you can get medical coverage and you can then go get, uh, you can get substance use disorder treatment. It's baked in. It's federal law. If you have Medi-Cal or you have out here, we have access. Mm -hmm. You get on access, you can go to treatment. No co-pays, no deductibles. You're wow. in treatment. Guess how much it, guess how much uh, 12 step meetings charge for treatment? <laughs> Zero. Free. Right. Right. Oh, it is a cult. Well, how does death sound? How does incarceration yeah. sound? Does incarceration sound culty? Because I got to tell you, they're clicked up in the fucking the joint. Right. Fuck prison life. I'd rather join this cult. Absolutely. Like, I don't know. There's, there's, My sponsor used to say, there's an organization of people. There's only one organization of people that cares about people like us. And it, unfortunately, it's us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it is and, true. And I, I, I try to live by that, both, both personally and professionally. Mm -hmm. If we don't do this work, people like you, people like me, uh, I, don't know, I don't know who else is going to do it. And I'm surprised constantly at how many non-abstinence-based treatment facilities there are. Right. Or how many claim to be abstinence-based, and then they promote long-term uh, suboxone maintenance. Mm -hmm. And I'm not here to shit on them. It's just not what we do. It's not what we do. It's not what I do. I'm not down for it. Right. I've just explained what we do and why we do it. Because right. that's where the real work can be done. It's, in, mm -hmm. it's, it's next to impossible to get meaningful psychotherapy done when somebody's loaded. And I know that that's an unpopular statement. I know that what I'm saying, if, if anybody that works in pharma hears me say that, they're going to... But I got to tell you, this isn't, this isn't my opinion. From the Center of National Defense, the federal government, who uses mm -hmm. EMDR, trauma therapy, the numero uno way we treat wounded veterans, veterans that have seen some real combat. PTSD. With, yes, who can't get on with normal civilian life mm -hmm. until they go through it. It's not effective unless they're sober. Not smoking weed, right? Not California sober. Not on fucking Suboxone. 100% abstinent. 100% sober. When you're abstinent, that's when EMDR is actually effective. Then you've got what's called the Physician's Health Program. This is the these are this is a monitoring agency within every state. All fifty states have it. Mm -hmm. It's a monitoring agency that when a doctor gets in trouble, right, gets a DUI or writes himself prescriptions or gets caught shooting heroin in the bathroom or whatever, <laughs> when a doctor gets in trouble, he gets right. he or she gets subjected to the Physician's Health Program where they're monitored, they're drug tested, they have to go to treatment, they got to join a twelve step program, they have to have a sponsor, etc. And somebody mm -hmm. monitors their behavior for a period of time. It's a probationary period. And right. Then, who decides whether they're fit to return to practice it's up to them so here in arizona i won't say his name the guy who's been the head of the main monitoring agency forever seems mm -hmm. uh, dr uh, greenberg right <laughs> no i'm sorry uh, not greenberg although he was part of it too sucher i'm thinking of dr michael sucher i sat i had lunch with sucher and i said listen how many docs have you returned fit for practice on suboxone or methadone?" Mm -hmm. you know what his answer was huh. after he burst into laughter. 
He was like, I would, no. He's like, I hate to use the word never, but I'm pretty sure I would never do that. It's like, I can't return doctors fit to operate on people that are high on Suboxone. Wow. And I gotta tell you, there's a lot of people that argue, oh, you don't get high. If you're stone cold sober, like you and I are years, mm -hmm. take, take four milligrams, you'd be on the fucking floor. <laughs> you'd be right. out. Hey, if you're a, if you're a beaten junkie with a high tolerance, Suboxone doesn't feel that strong. It doesn't. Right. Give it to a 12 year old who's never had a sip of alcohol. Mm. Give him two milligrams. They'll be asleep for hours on the floor, on the floor, sideways, drooling. <laughs> Shit is powerful. Wow. And no, and, and in this, in the United States, they, they almost never return doctors for, for practice while they're taking it. So if it's not good enough for the medical community, it's not good enough for my fucking kids. It's not mm. good enough for me. It's not good enough for my friends. It's not good enough for my patients. Love it. This I is, got a bit of a soapbox about this stuff. I, I good. That's why I wanted you on here. I wanted to talk about this in, in the realest fashion that we could. This is this is very serious. Too many people are this fucking dying. The people are dropping like flies, and, and we're going to sit here and pussyfoot and not have a real conversation about this or not. That's why, like, I, I could sit here and ask you, still, like, what kind of conversations do you have with these kids? I I know what I have. I know what I do, and I know what you do. Just from the sounds of it, within mm -hmm. two to three months, somebody can completely transform as mm -hmm. long as you can just try to assist them in getting out of their own way. Try mm -hmm. to show a mirror to them of what they're doing to themselves and show them that it's a f fucking facade. It's a total facade. Like, you got talented people. I mean, if you can't tell, I got my, I'm a Prince fan. There it is. And, and, and he was, you know, no one would have thought that this guy that had legitimate pain, legitimate pain was fucking really using pain pills, not because he had psychological issues growing up, but like he, he ended up getting into some painkillers, which then took him to, you know, fentanyl, which was an accidental overdose, right? As they, as they label it. And, and he passed away. This is real. It's happening to everyone. It doesn't discriminate. It doesn't matter if, if you're a kid, if you're an adult, if you're famous, it doesn't fucking matter. So I'm, very, 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 very happy that we got to have this conversation today. I've been wanting to talk to you about it. And what better place to do it here than in this type of arena where other people can actually uh, interact and be a part of this conversation and see like what we're talking about. This is really, really serious shit. It is. And the looks, the looks on parents' faces when they drop their loved ones off here. Uh, and then versus, and then versus because they're just lost they're desperate and they're just they're 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 right they're right they're ready to let go and give up versus the look in somebody's eye when they start to catch fire when they start picking up the breadcrumb trail that we've been saying is right in front of them the whole time right. they start picking it up and they start following it and they start going around corners and things start to work out the look in their eyes i'm sponsoring this guy right he uh and he goes on a 12-step call and he helps this guy get into a detox and he's just man it felt so good to help this guy and blah blah blah, blah. i'm like yeah man it's awesome man you know, we're going to, we got a lot of work for you. It's going to be great. He's like, okay, great. And a few hours goes by. It's nine o'clock at night. He calls me and I go, Hey man, what's up? You good? And he goes, one question, one answer. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. And he's like, my life is a movie and I got to just let it happen. Right. And I'm like, <laughs> yes. He's like, I fucking knew it, man. He's like, I just got to make the right decisions and God's going to take care of everything. And I'm like, yep, pretty much. And you're going to watch it unfold in way crazier ways than the shit that went down today. I'm like, dude, your life is going to expand and unfold in ways you can't possibly imagine. And I love that you touched on um, that. You touched on the law of attraction stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't really get into it with guys uh, too much unless I've been sponsoring them for a while. And right. there seems to be a blockage. If there's a blockage, if somebody like can't get out of their own way, mm -hmm. that's when I usually start to talk about some of that stuff with them because right. You're correct. We very much, we very much influence the fabric of our experience as humans with our mm -hmm. thought life. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand that when I was even in early sobriety. I didn't understand that. I used yeah. to say uh, and feel and think some very fucked up negative things and unloving things about myself mm -hmm. to myself. And it wasn't until that shifted and changed mm -hmm. that I really found. <clears throat> here's here's a. Here's one thing that happened to me. I was in a place and I heard somebody say that every thought is a prayer. Mm -hmm. Every single thought you have is a prayer to the source of all things. And when I heard that, my first feeling was shame. I thought, holy 
seriously? I was like, fuck, I've been doing this all wrong. Right. I can't believe I've wasted all these. Every thought's a prayer. That's kind of, I never thought about that. Never heard that. Years, years ago, somebody told, I heard that. I, they didn't tell it directly to me. I heard it in a crowd. And, uh, and yeah, and I just, I tripped out on that. I tripped out on it for a few weeks and I really started modifying my behaviors. Because if every thought's a prayer, and sometimes I think like, well, hey, what if it is a simulation? What if we all wake up out of this, like in whenever, whenever the game's over and you come out of the simulation and, and, I'm, and they're going to be like, dude, Essel, you were such a fucking wuss those last few years. I'll be like, oh man, can I try it again? They'll be like, dude, you've already tried it like 15 times. Barring <laughs> 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 uh, that it's not a simulation. Um, yeah, what we do matters and, and our thought life influences the fabric of our experience here. And it influences the fabric of other people's experience as well. And I think that that's our responsibility as, as guardians of the light or whatever you want to call us. Absolutely. We need to, we need to be out here fostering love and nurturing um, intelligence and awareness so that people can go on and live good lives. Life doesn't have to be this. It was like it says in the big book, this veil of tears. It doesn't have to be that way. You know, people, people identify with dark music and dark, pop culture because because many people feel that way alcoholic or not and the truth is you don't have to see life through that lens i'm mm -hmm. very familiar with what that lens is i lived that way many many years sure to flip it the other way and be like actually i can get barring enough time and resources i could do literally anything mm -hmm. look at life through that lens all of a sudden it becomes a, a an issue of time and resources if being the best father and husband and sponsor and friend i can be is the most important thing to me then that's how I spend my time. That's right. That's researching right. executing on those, on those practices. Oh man, this is so good. So much good, good stuff here. It's, it's like, I, I love when, uh, when I, when we can have conversations like this. Likewise. I kind of feel like I'm on mushrooms right now. <laughs> sure. I like all the time. I mean, if this was, if this is the type of a wealth of knowledge and goodness and just heartfelt, conversations can come out of it I, these are the types of mushrooms i'll do all day long and don't even get me started on talking about the the microdosing and stuff we could have another episode about that another time Dude, we totally should <laughs> we should we totally should we should so good to have you out here today um if there's anything that you would like to say before we sign off i i i appreciate you truly like you're you're my brother man like totally totally good to have you on is there anything you want to say before we sign off uh shit if you're listening to this and you're not really in recovery and you're thinking about it and maybe you're still smoking weed and trying to figure it out, just fucking drink the Kool-Aid. Go to, go to some 12-step meetings. Get yourself a sponsor. Take the leap. Head first into the deep end. What's, we're, not, we're, not like the, you know, we're not like the hillside press. We're not going to fucking chase you around if you decide to leave. Right. Like, you can jump yourself out of this gang if you want to. <laughs> it, it's, it's free trial, man. Try try the twelve step world. Try the absence based recovery world for a year. See if see if your life doesn't change. We're not going to ask a, anything too crazy. We're not going to ask you to do anything illegal. That's for sure. We're just going to mm -hmm. ask you to try and get honest and maybe straighten out some broken relationships and maybe pay your back taxes. And then we're asking to help people. If you can and if you can if you can just delve into that, delve into it for a year. See if your life oh, doesn't yeah. get crazy good. And if it doesn't, then you can send me hate mail. You can give me the finger on social media. Tell me I was wrong. <laughs> Love it. Awesome. 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 You're the best, Estelle. Thank, thank you for coming out to the corner today. And uh, I'll be talking to you soon. We're going to sign off. Much love to everybody that came on. Bye.